study through the book of James. We are in James chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of James chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and, and uh, these guys will bring one right to your seat. John and Bill will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Now, I have to say this. If you've been following along with us through the book of James since the beginning, I commend you for it. Because <laughs> James is a hard book to take in. In many ways, it's like coming back week after week for a good chewing out. You know, ah, need to be chewed out again today. And you're going, you going to go to church on Sunday? Yeah, I, I, I need to be chewed out one more time. But know this, there is some encouragement in this. There is some, a lot of application in this. And, and, uh, and it is God's Word. And so we need to be open to receive all that God has for us. And uh, not just take, take the good stuff, but take some of the tough stuff in our life. And so... Um, that's just a, and I know this, it hits me, I get to chewing out before it gets you guys, okay? So, um, just know that's where we're at this morning. So let's read uh, James chapter 4, first 12 verses. James writes, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? The title of my message this morning is The Blame Game. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can gather together in your name, in this place, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to show us things in our life that we need to hear, Lord, that we need to apply to our lives, be it exhortations, encouragements, convictions. Lord, you know us all together. You know us well, and you know what we need in our lives. And so we just pray that we would open ears to receive it from you today. And Lord, we also pray if there's anyone here that that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, we know that they need you in their lives. They need to come to you in faith and commit their lives to you. So Lord, I pray that you'd convict their hearts today and they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the first Friday in January, it's a Friday the 13th, and it marks the National Blame Someone Else Day. <laughs> True thing. It came about on the Friday the 13th back in 1982 when a woman named Ann Moel's alarm clock didn't go off it when it was supposed to, and the, her whole day turned out to be horrible. Now, we have the opportunity this coming January to enjoy a day of blaming everyone else for everything else that has or will go wrong. 
So don't blame me if you miss it, because I warned you. But you can blame me, because it is blame someone else day, but I'll just blame back to you again, and then you can blame me, and then I'll blame you again. Listen, the blame game has been going on a very, very long time. It goes all the way back to the beginning there in the book of Genesis. started with the first couple, Adam and Eve, for the entire uh, forbidden fruit eating incident. But Adam took it a step further. Blame God, since after all, God did create Eve. Clearly, this wouldn't have happened if it hadn't, he hadn't made the woman. Well, Adam sure is a tough act to follow, but plenty of people have attempted to raise that bar in blaming others throughout the centuries. Think about it. Don't we blame everyone and everything else when things go wrong, especially today? We're living in a day and a time when no one wants to take responsibility for their actions anymore. It's always somebody else's fault. If we have trouble at home, it's not my fault. It's my spouse's fault. If you're having trouble at work, oh, it's, it's not you. It's always your boss or it's your co-worker at school. Well, it's not. I'd be getting better grades if it wasn't for that, that teacher. It's that teacher's fault. If you're having trouble in life in general, uh, it's not my fault. I was raised in a dysfunctional family. We always have an excuse for our behavior. Or we say things like, well, I wouldn't have done it if, if you didn't do so and so. It's your fault. Or I do those things because that's just the way my father and my mom always acted. Or, or maybe I shouldn't have done it, but, but you're just as bad. You know, and we, we should, you know, put blame that way. Somehow those sort of excuses make us feel better about ourselves as if we've been excused. And yet more often than not, when we start blaming other people for our actions, it soon becomes a catalyst for more arguing, more fighting, more contentions in the home, at work, even in church. In fact, years ago, this is a true story, an event that took place in the Emanuel Baptist Church of Newton, Massachusetts. It's recorded in the late Chuck Colson's book called The Body. And he describes what happens. It was the right hook that got him. Pastor Waite might have stood in front of the communion table trading punches with head deacon Ray Bryson all morning had not Ray's fist caught him on the chin two minutes and 15 seconds into the fight. Wait went down from the count at the altar where most members of Emmanuel Baptist had first declared their commitment to Christ. Within an instant, the majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching or shoving. The melee soon spilled over to an open space beside the organ. Mary Dahl, the director of Dorcas Society, threw a hymnal. The missile sailed high and wide and splashed down in the baptistry behind the choir. When Ray's right hook finally took the pastor down, Someone grabbed the spring flower arrangement from the altar and threw it high in the air in Ray's direction. Well, water sprinkled everyone in the first two rows on the right side, and a visiting Presbyterian experienced complete immersion when the vase shattered against the wall next to the seat. The fight ended when the police arrived on the scene. We look around today. We see that there is fighting and there is warring just about every level of society. We have it in our place of employment. We have it in, in politics. We have it in, in, in schools. We have it in our homes frequently. We have it in the church. Now, I am comforted to some extent because many times people do say, oh, I wish that we lived during the times of the early church to go back to the good old days with Paul and Peter and the boys. That The church back then was so much better. But when I read James here, I say, wait a minute. They had conflicts back then too. They were blaming others back then as we do today. In fact, Paul, in addressing the church in Corinth, said this in 2 Corinthians 
For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, and whisperings, and conceits, and tumults. This is going on in the church. Corinth was a, a rowdy church. Conflicts, contentions, selfishness. Paul had to write letters to them because this stuff was going on with them. So, yeah, there's always been conflict among God's people. I think of James and John. You know, they were battling for that first position in the kingdom of God. The Galatian believers, they were biting and devouring one another, Paul says. Paul had to encourage the Ephesian church towards spiritual unity. Even Paul's beloved church, the church in Philippi, there are two women there that couldn't get along with each other. So a lot of our New Testament letters and epistles deal with addressing problems within the church. And James is, says this is one of them. James continues on and he really ties verse 18 of chapter 3 into verse 1 of chapter 4. Take a look at verse 18 of chapter 3. James writes, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's as if James is getting ready to really strike a nerve in the hearts of his readers by showing the contrast between what a church should look like compared to what was going on in that church at that time. When the church is going good, when people are right with God, and they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, there's going to be fruit in their lives, evidence of peace among God's people because we worship the Prince of Peace. But this wasn't happening. Anything but. Instead of peace, there was conflict. There's turmoil. There's fighting. So James sets out to get these believers back where they need to be. And if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three things this morning when it comes to dealing with conflicts. Number one, the cause of conflicts. Number two, the characteristics of conflicts. And number three, the cure for conflicts. First and foremost, the cause of conflict. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. James asked the question, Where do wars and fights come from among you? The Amplified Bible puts it this way. What leads to strife, discord, and feuds? And how do conflicts, quarrels, and fightings originate among you? I mean, that covers everything that was going on. Strife, discord, feuds, conflicts, quarrels. James says, where does it all come from? What's the cause of all this conflict that's happening? Then he answers it. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Really, when you get down to it, that is the source of all the conflict in life for the most part. Church and uh, conflict in the church, conflict in the home, conflict in the workplace, conflict abroad among nations. It comes down to what James is identifying here, the desire for pleasure. It's interesting that Greek word for desire is hedonan, and it's where we get our English word hedonism from. It means the enjoyment derived from the fulfillment of one's desire or the craving for the pleasure itself. In other words, their goal in life, to go back to Cheryl Crow's song back in 2009, all I want to do is have some fun. I've got the feeling I'm not the only one. Hedonism. It really all comes back down to selfishness and that old sinful nature that we were all born with. And always trying to, to satisfy that old sinful nature instead of trying to, to please the Lord. Notice the last two words there in verse 1, or, or, or first part of verse 1. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? 
Now, some commentators say it should be translated in you, not among you, and they insist that the struggle between people is not a struggle between people, but a struggle within. But I think it's both. You can't separate the two. Outward struggles are just the symptom of an inward struggle. One man put it this way, a person not at peace with himself can surely not be at peace with his associates. So when James suggests that these struggles come from within man himself, he steps on a lot of these psychologists' toes again as he's done in the past. He steps on those toes of those secularists that, that would say uh, that, that the problem of all a man's anger and the problem of all a man's hostility is because of his parents, because of his environment, because they were brought, the way they were brought up. And there is some truth to that, but the truth of the matter is the kind of crime and, and violence that we see in our world today isn't simply as a result of the environment that we were raised in. It comes from a problem that we were born with. A sinful nature bent on sin. You know, uh, when Lisa and my wife and I were raising our kids, we never once had to teach them to be selfish. We never, never had to say, this is how you take a toy away from another child. You just grab it and you say, mine. We never had to say, okay, watch, watch what's mean and Lisa does. Okay, I say mine and she's going to say mine. Mine, mine, mine. We never had to teach them that. It was built into their little bodies, little sinners born with their little sin natures. James is showing us it's not the environment outside that causes the conflicts and the fights. The problem comes from within man, the fact that we're all little greedy sinners by nature. So if you're looking at others to blame for the cause of your attitude problems, the cause of the conflicts in your life, you're looking in the wrong place. James says it's time to look deep down inside and see that the problem's you. problem's me. It's an old sinful nature that's in all of us. Uh, there's an old story that's gone around a long time. It's a story about the scorpion and the tortoise. Maybe you've heard this before. The scorpion wanted to cross a little river. Of course, scorpions can't swim. He found this tortoise. He walked up to it and said, Hello there, good sir. Top of the day to you. I was wondering if you might take me across that river there. True story. Uh, the tortoise... No... The tortoise said, if I were to do that, you would sting me and I would, we would drown. The scorpion said, where would the logic be in, in, in that, my good friend? Give me a ride. The tortoise said, you have a point there. Hop on board. And as they're making their way across uh, the river, sure enough, that scorpion lifts up that stinger and sticks it right into the tortoise. The tortoise realizes they're both going to die. They're, they're both going to drown. He can't understand it. And he turns to the you know, scorpion and says, excuse me. I have one question. You told me there was no logic in it. Why did you do it? Scorpion replied, My dear turtle, it's just my nature. <laughs> that answers a lot of questions, doesn't it? Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is wicked. Man is not basically good. Man is basically bad. Really bad. <laughs> Now, that makes a lot of sense if you believe that. Because if you believe that man is basically good, then you have a, a heart, uh, really you're going to have a hard time explaining a lot of the evil things that are going on in our world today. The atrocities in Ukraine, the, the threat of nuclear war recently, the, the five people shot dead in North Carolina, including a police officer by an accused 15-year-old. But if you say that man is born bad, born with the sin nature, as the Bible says, then there's hope because the Bible also teaches 
that if any man or woman uh, is in Christ, they can become a new creation. Old things passed away. All things can become new. Have a new nature. One that knows God and serves Him. That's full of peace and righteousness and hope. So the conflict is hedonism. Living for pleasure. Living for the flesh. Living to fulfill that old sinful nature. Now James wants to point out for, wants to point out next to us point number two, the characteristics of the conflict. Look at verse two. He writes, "You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask him that you may spend it on your pleasures." So, what are the the characteristics of conflicts? In other words, what is it that marks this kind of people. James, he lays it out for us. He says it's lust, it's murder, it's covetousness, it's fights, it's wars. James says, verse 2, you lust and do not have. That word lust alone describes a vast range of, of desires, pleasures, wants, and emotions. It's based totally on self-gratification, self-satisfaction. You know, when a, when a man clicks on a pornographic page on the internet and begins looking at pictures, he's doing so to gratify a lust from within. Same thing is true for a woman who pursues a lust, whatever it may be, because it brings in some measure of self-gratification. Now listen, especially husbands and wives, pornography is desired to stimulate and to feed that lust, but to never satisfy so when there is that desire to feed that lust, this, this internal lust, and someone happens to in, interfere with that fulfillment of that desire, that pleasure, they will often lash at you for seemingly no reason at all. In other words, you want to sin, you want to fulfill that fleshy desire, and when you can't, you lash out. You fight and you war, James says, and there is conflict. That's why so many men become angry when they become addicted to pornography, And sadly, wives are left in the dark because also often they don't know what's going on. They don't understand where all this anger is coming from. And on top of that, pornography treats women as objects. And that too spills over into the marriage relationship as husbands treat their wives with disrespect. And there is just the the battle that rages on. It's a horrible sin. A sin, I mean, all sin is horrible. This one, I've watched so many marriages fail. And so many marriages struggle because of it. Trying to fulfill a lust that will never satisfy. And it leaves you coming back for more and for more. See, that's why one of the reasons God created the marriage relationship was because of the intimacy between the husband and the wife that does satisfy. When you do it God's way, not man's. But let me say it, the lust for, for things of this world will never satisfy And that can apply to many things, not just sexual lust that that doesn't satisfy. Ask a a drug addict. Ask the alcoholic. He or she will say, just one more hit, then then, then I'm going to quit, then I'll be fine. One more six-pack, then I'll stop drinking. One more, and then I'll quit. Because it's an unsatisfied pleasure. It leaves you empty, wanting more and more. Let me make it something a little less sinful, a little more applicable. Let's say you want a new car. And you had your eye on that car. You, you kind of, you're lusting at it. And you're thinking, man, if I just had that car, then I would be happy. And then you get that car. And you drive it for about eight, nine, ten months. And then they come out with a newer version. 
Oh, look at look at the oh if only I waited. Oh, oh man, if I could just get that car, the new one, then I'll be happy. And then the following it's a oh they got another one like that. It's never enough. You know, if we have a million dollars, guess what? It's not enough. We want two. You say, Well, Pastor, if I had a million dollars, it would be enough. Try me. <laughs> but you know what? The fact is it wouldn't be. You only think it would. It will not satisfy. That's why so many people are playing the lottery today. They think, if only I win, then I'll be happy. Grasping for money, grasping for the pleasures that they think that money will bring. It characterizes those who are in war outside the church and inside the church tragically. It characterizes those who are living in their flesh. James says, as a result, in verse 2, you murder and covet and you cannot obtain. When it comes to murder, John wrote in 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer is eternal life abiding in him. So they're, they're fighting. They're hating one another, and since murdering one another. He says you covet, and you cannot obtain. In other words, you strive to fulfill that lust, and you're left empty. Listen, if this verse tells us anything at all, it's that the natural heart of man is never content. Uh, this awful craving for the pleasures of life never stops. It just goes on and on and on. Trying to find satisfaction in the things of life, it's like trying to to chase a mirage. It's always just out of reach. It always eludes you. James says, you lust, you kill, you fight, you ask. You're always reaching, you're always groping. You're you're never going to quit quit until you get it. And it's a never-ending pursuit. It's like a dog chasing his tail. Have you ever seen dogs do that? Round and around and around really, really fast. I think stupid dog, you know. If your dog does that, you have a stupid dog. All right. (laughs) Don't call my dog stupid. Listen, the Bible has some strong things to say about seeking pleasure as the ultimate satisfaction. Moses learned that the afflictions of God were better than the passing pleasures of sin. Listen to Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, that the pleasures of life are the thorns that choke out the word of God in a man's heart. Paul talked about the various lusts and pleasures, how they characterize the life of an unbeliever in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Peter says that one of the ways that you would know and identify false teachers is that they would, they, if they considered it pleasure to carouse or party in the daytime. Now understand, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Uh, this isn't a study to put down pleasure or to say we have to walk around miserable all the time and no joy and have no fun. No. Christians should be the most joyous people around. Rather, this is a study that says it's wrong to seek pleasure apart from God's plan in giving us pleasure. Because true pleasure comes with a relationship with God. We're told in Psalm 16, verse 11, speaking of God, you show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and on your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's pleasure in knowing God. The Bible often speaks about the joy of the Lord and true happiness that comes from God. And we as, as Christians can experience the greatest pleasure in life by knowing God and walking with Him. Psalm 84:11 tells us, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
it's important to understand what that, that's saying. He, it's saying, if it's good, God will bring it into my life. If it's not good for me, then I don't need it. Even if I think, oh, this would be the best thing for me. You know, there are sometimes there's things in life that we look at and we think, you know, that should be really, really good. But it's really, really bad for us. Man, a relationship, maybe you're single, man, this would be it. Oh, man, this is a, the, my a relationship. This would be great. Or a job opportunity. Oh, this is my dream job. If I just get that job, this would be it. But God knows that that relationship is only going to bring you down, pull you away from Him. Or that new job or that company you want to work for is going to go out of business in a month. God knows what's best for us. And no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. I can know with complete confidence that I have a loving Heavenly Father that's looking out for my best benefit, my best interest. So if God tells me no for something that I may desire, then I know it's for my own good. But again, James here is speaking about those that are making pleasure the driving force in their lives. How people just, they live for pleasure. People that live for the next thrill, the next thing that just might make them happy, that would bring fulfillment in their life. But James says, listen, you're looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. Again, back in verse 2, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So much fighting, so much warring going on, so much working to try and get what you want, when really all that you should have done or what you could have done, it's just simply go to God directly and ask Him. God, you are the giver of every good gift. Every good gift comes from you, Father. Here's the thing that I desire, God. Please, God, open the doors. I know you can provide this for me according to you, well, that I might bring honor and glory to your name. But Lord, if you don't want me to have it, then I don't want it. And we need to pray that. See, it's simply turning to God and asking it's the same truth that we teach our children. I'm willing to give them all sorts of blessings that are good for them if they just ask. You know, those of you that have kids, you know this. You've probably seen more milk spilled out of your refrigerator because of five little words. I can do it myself, right? Just ask. I'll get the milk out for you. It saves us both time and money. Asking is a proper thing to do. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you're working and conniving and scheming to get what you want, using all your energy to make it happen, you're going to be miserable. But again, if you simply just say, Lord, you know what I need. I think this would be great, but you know, Lord, so we just provide what you think best for my life. You're going to have that peace, just committing it to the Lord. Now you may say, but, but Pastor Tom, I've asked and I've asked and I still haven't got what I asked for. Well, James addresses that as well and says, here could be the problem. Look at verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So he's saying maybe the asking is done with the wrong motive. Lord, I've just been praying. I've been praying that you could get rid of this boss that's just always on my case fire him, just, I don't know, get rid of him in any, any way you can. God, how come you're not answering my prayer? I recently read about a couple of bank robbers that prayed God's blessing on them before they robbed the bank. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us not get shot. Really? Listen, James says, maybe your prayers aren't being answered because you're not asking for the right thing. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, this comes down to our motives for prayer. 
Listen, God refuses to listen to men who eagerly pursue selfish pleasures. God refuses to listen to a prayer that comes from a heart filled with selfish motives. God refuses to answer because covetousness and selfishness are an insult to God. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is there are some principles found in the New Testament that we can be assured of that God will answer our prayers if we put them into place. Let me quickly give you five things that the Bible teaches about praying. Number one, when we pray, we're to pray, we're to ask in faith. We looked at this already in chapter 1, verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for you. Doubts is like a wave of sea driven and tossed by the wind. Number two, when we pray, we are to pray in the name of Jesus. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. When we pray, number three, we're to pray according to the will of God. 1 John five fourteen. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then fourthly, when we pray, we are to be in a right relationship with others. Right relationship with others. First Peter 3, 7 gives instructions to the husband. It says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together with the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you're the cause of your wife's grief and crying out that you need to go to your wife, you need to ask forgiveness if you want your prayers answered. In fact, Matthew, Jesus reiterates that theory for all of that, that, that uh, principle for all of us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, where he says, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift ever before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then fifthly, if we want our prayers answered, we need to have no unconfessed sin in our lives. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Five things the Bible says teaches about praying. Ask in faith, pray in the name of Jesus, pray according to God's will, be in a right relationship with others, and have no unconfessed sin in our lives. Now, James really wants them and, un- and us to, to understand the danger that comes from not having that right heart for loving the pleasures of this world more than the the pleasures from the Lord. And he doesn't mince words. Look at verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an enemy of God. See, we need to realize that we're born into God's family and it involves uh, showing allegiance to Jesus. We agree to love Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to follow Him supremely. That's why the pursuit of a pleasure or profit is a betrayal of that commitment to the Lord. James calls it spiritual adultery. Our hearts belong to God, not to the passing sinful pleasures of this world. Verse 5, he says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The Holy Spirit is jealous for our affections. He's insulted with our flirtations and our infatuations with the things of the world. God desires our unrivaled affection. Listen, James knows that spiritual adultery, like physical adultery, destroys relationships. It destroys our fellowship with God. Friendship with the world can do that. You know, it's hard to be friends best friends with somebody that's not a Christian. You can be friends with them, but to be best friends with someone that's not a Christian, it can be difficult. 
Because when you're with them, and if you spend a lot of time with them, what you hear them talking about is all about the cares and the concerns of this life and the, the pursuits for pleasure and, and material things. Yeah, let's do that, let's do that. Yeah, and you hang around them long enough. It's going to affect your life. We need to be careful. I'm not saying that we can't love people that are non-Christians. Just be careful. It's like a, a boat in the water. A boat was created to be on top of the water. We as, create, as, as God's creation were created to know and serve God. We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. The boat is created again to be designed to be on top of the water. But if that boat fills up with water, we've got a problem. We're sunk. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Friendship with the world destroys our fellowship with God. So we've seen the source of our conflict. We've seen it's us. It comes from that old sin nature born into us. We've seen the characteristics of conflict, lust for pleasure, murder, covetousness. Finally, the cure for conflict. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, we know the acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's grace is so important because if we don't understand God's grace towards us and all that we have been blessed with because of his grace, then we are going to have problems with one another. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be fights. There's going to be struggles. But when we say, God, you have been so gracious to me that even when I was against you, even when we were sinners, the Bible says Christ died for me, I certainly can show grace to this person who has been treating me unfairly. I can show grace to this person who's slandered me, who's blaming me for everything. I can show grace to this person who's offended me. It's God who enables us. He fills us with His grace to say no to the world. So listen, if there's a conflict in your life, fight with one another, arguing all the time, never backing down, always trying to get your point across, always trying to get that last word in, always having to be right, that tells me there's a whole lot of pride going on in your life right now. How can you expect God to bless you and fill you with every good thing if you're all filled up with yourself? James here says that God resists the proud. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 6.16 that God hates the six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven things are an abomination to Him. And very, the top of the list is that proud look. He just hates it. See, James brings it all down to this. Pride is the problem. So what's the cure? He says it. But God gives grace to the humble. You, if you want God to raise you up in usefulness, to power you in victory and in strength, you have to go low. Got to go low. Got to humble yourself. It's been said there's no room for two gods in the universe. It's true. James verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What does that mean to submit to God, to resist the devil? The word submit means to line up under. It's a, it's a, it's a military term. It, it's for soldiers to, to under the authority of their commanding officer. It speaks of a willing, conscious submission to God's authority and our part. See, before I can find the, the resources necessary to effectively resist the devil, I need to completely surrender to God. Have you done that yet? I think some of us want it both ways. We still want to be in charge. We don't want to surrender to the Lord, but we still, you know, we, we want to resist the devil. Listen, you need all the help you can get. Submit to God, then resist the devil. Why? Because he will flee from you. Not he might flee from you. 
he will flee from you. That word resist is essentially a defensive word describing an attack coming your way. Withstand the attack. Don't give in to that temptation. Jesus was a perfect example of that and submitting to God and and resisting the devil there in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness. Before he was tempted, you know, the devil, he spent 40 days fasting and praying. In other words, he was submitting to God. And then when the devil came, he responded with scripture, thus effectively resisting the devil's temptation. That's what it means to submit and resist. Completely surrender yourself to God, to his word and his will. So that when the devil comes around and he brings the temptations your way, you won't go, is this really okay for me to do? Or should I not do that? You'll know because you spent time in God's word. You've drawn near to God. In fact, that's what James goes on to say in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's only one way to do that. Recognize I can't uh, draw near to him in my own abilities or my good works or my, my good deeds. Realize that I am separated by God through sin. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I have access to the throne of God in the first place. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, before I can really draw near to him, something important has got to happen. And it's given to us at the end of verse 8 and on into verse 9. James says, look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We need to quit playing the blame game. We need to get serious about repentance. It's my sin that I have to deal with. It's your sin that you have to deal with. We need to quit blaming everyone and everything else. If there is sin in your life, then tackle it with a willingness to change. Repent from it. Turn from it. Then turn to the Lord. Lament and mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James isn't against laughter. But he's saying there's something phony going on when you come to the altar and you weep and you confess your sins and then a half hour later you're out sitting all over again and laughing about it. Don't be double-minded. Be all in for Jesus. Quit trying to live in both worlds. There's a lot of people like that in the church today. Christians that want to live in both worlds. Remember, these words are addressed to believers. He's telling us, stop loving the world. And if you love the world, if you allow the world system to permeate your thinking, you're going to become an enemy of God. Don't let that happen. It's like uh, the story I read of a guy in the Civil War. He, he couldn't decide if he wanted to fight for the North or the South, so he wore the shirt of the North and the trousers of the South. Ended up getting shot from both sides. That's what happens to a person who lives in both worlds. I want to go to church. I want to know I'm forgiven. I know I want to go to heaven. But I want to go out and do whatever I want to do during the week. It doesn't work that way. God is saying if you live that way, you're an adulterer adulterous, you're unfaithful, you need to repent. But not just repent. He takes it one step further to do what is right. Look at verse 10. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's been said, promote yourself and you'll rise as high as you can go. Humble yourself and God will promote you to a place only he can lift you. I love this. God tells us is we're not just to, to humble ourselves, But he gives us a great illustration, practical application of what this humility looks like. 
Not surprisingly, coming from James, it talks about our tongues. Look at verse 11 and 12. We'll close with this. He says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who was able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? See, it all goes back down to how we treat one another. Humbling yourself before God means in part you realize that you shouldn't use your tongue to hurt other people. You shouldn't use your words to, to, to drag them down. It means humbling yourself and asking forgiveness from those that you've offended. Asking forgiveness from those you have had conflicts with, fights with, wars with. Acknowledging your own sin. Making things right with that other person. Making things right with God. See, this is how the whole chapter began. James says, besides, you really have no authority to speak evil about another person. God alone is a judge. And when we judge one another, we, we put ourselves in the place of God. There's only one lawgiver, and that's God and Him alone. Who are you to judge another, James says. See, here's the problem with all of us. There needs to be a heart change. We've identified the problem. Here it is, the old life, self-centered life, the selfish life isn't going to fulfill you. In fact, that's the source of the problem. And God says, here's what you need to do. You need to come to Christ. And you need to start living that new life that Christ has given to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I love that verse. Listen to it in the Amplified Version. Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ, the Messiah, he's a new creation, a new creature altogether. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. I like that. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. You know, advertisers figured uh, this out a long time ago and the way to sell their product that they had around for years. Describe it as fresh and new to it. Have you your favorite soap, you know. Uh, try our new fresh scent. It's, it's the new one. You know, they say it's new and improved, but all they did is just change the box and the color of the box. This is better. Uh, there is something in us that loves it to the newest, the latest, the fastest, the fresh and new has come. Listen, everything that is new soon becomes old. Get that new car, it gets dented. Get the new cell phone, you get that crack in it. Get those new toys, the batteries run dead. God is a true giver of new things. He gives things that last forever. They'll never break, they'll never run out of batteries. What God makes new never becomes old. We come to Him through a new birth. He gives us a new nature, the Bible says, a new heart, a new life, a new hope, a new purpose. And in the end, he's going to give us a new home, a place called heaven. Nothing up there will ever be worn out or, or old. Jesus takes ordinary people and he makes them extraordinary. A life that was dull and meaningless and without form and void, he gives meaning to it and purpose and direction. You say, well, how do I receive this new nature and purpose in life? Let me tell you, the answer is found and the conversation that Jesus had some 2,000 years ago between him and a religious man named Nicodemus. He came to the Lord one night there in John chapter 3. He was famous, powerful, wealthy, influential, deeply religious man, very devout. But something was still missing in his life. He was still searching. He had heard about Jesus, about his ministry, so he came to him at night, presumably so he, he wouldn't be recognized, and began to converse with him. 
And Jesus looked at this man and knew exactly what this man needed. And the Lord really just cut to the chase and he said, Nicodemus, let me get down to it with you, buddy. You need to be born again. It's paraphrased. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. There must be a new birth that happens inside of you. And until you have that new birth, you're going to be that same old you. And, and you can be that same old you coming to church and you can have a new Bible and, and know a few new Christian songs, maybe hang out with a few, a few uh, Christian circles, learn some of the Christian cliches, hallelujah, praise the Lord, it's all going to burn, you know, that sort of thing. But it's still the same old you. You must be born again. So as we close here this morning, do you want a new you? A new nature? Do you want that emptiness inside to, to, to be filled, that, that void, to be filled with joy and hope and peace and forgiveness? You want to have the hope of heaven? You need to be born again today to come to Christ and ask the Lord to save you, to repent of your sin. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that they would uh, hear your words this morning, that you spoke to our hearts, and they would see that they need to be born again. They need to come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is yet to come to you, that they would do so this morning. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? I just want to give you an opportunity to come to faith in Christ, to, to become that new creation in Christ. The old passes away. Everything becomes new if you take that step of faith and commit your life to Him this morning. But it means coming to Him and saying, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me my sin. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody at all? Father, we thank you for the relationship we have with you. We thank you, Lord, that we've been born again. As believers, we have that new nature. Lord, help us to, to reckon that old man dead, as Paul puts it. Lord, help us to walk in your spirit, not in our flesh. Lord, help us to fulfill the desires that you want for us, not our old fleshly desires. Lord, if there is repentance in our heart that we need to, de- we need to, to, to do, Lord, that we would not wait another moment. If there's someone we need to ask forgiveness for, that we would go to them and we would ask for that forgiveness. Lord, ultimately, all of our sin is against you. And so, Lord, we want to come to you and we ask that you would forgive us, cleanse us of our sin. Help us not live for the pleasures of this world, but to live for you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us the power to do that. Bless our week as we go away, Lord looking for ways that we might honor and glorify you in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.